Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. I spent the morning at the DMV. I was there for three hours, but <laughs> I got a new driver's license. How about you? What have you been up to? I feel like three hours is pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Honestly. Got pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you how once I got, I went to the DMV and um, I waited there for three hours and it wasn't until after I took my photo and they're like, you're actually not 21, so you can't renew it. And there was literally someone in line who like checks to make sure that like you're in line for the right reason. Um, So this is not a DMV supported podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, my week has been good. I just came back from um, sending my sister to college, which is huge. I think my mom is still in denial because she didn't cry in the car. Um, and she thinks that it feels like we just dropped her off at camp. And I was like, this is, you're not going to see her for like two months, mom. Very long camp. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, today we are super excited because we will be interviewing Seth Woods of Wild Up over a glass of tomato lime sipper. Great. Let's get into it. For today's drink, I chose a tomato lime sipper. You know, the longer we do this podcast, the more out there we have to go. So if you want to imagine what this drink tastes like, it's like a Bloody Mary, but imagine like a very chill Bloody Mary. So obviously no alcohol. Um, And it just tastes a lot more refreshing because it's not as spicy. It's just not as much mixed in there. So honestly, I found this drink very refreshing. Um, the lime definitely puts in a whole different element to the drink. It doesn't taste like at all, just like straight up tomato juice. So I enjoyed it. How about you, Teresa? I think that if I liked Bloody Marys, I would enjoy this drink. Um, but I don't like Bloody Marys. And the only thing that I would like about a Bloody Mary is the alcohol part. So this drink doesn't really do much for me. Mm. Um, but I didn't even no there was like a virgin version of a bloody mary if not for this podcast where we are forced to look up virgin drinks so now you know <laughs> that is funny yeah i feel like bloody mary is the one drink that makes no sense without alcohol but i guess there we go it does i mean it's not bad it, it tastes fine um <laughs> but i'm super excited to hop into the interview today uh just to give you guys some context I am like a really big fan of this composer, Julius Eastman. He's like a really dope black composer. Um, He died a while ago, but his music has made a pretty big resurgence in the last couple of years. And we are going to be talking to today, Seth Woods, who plays um, for the group Wild Up. And they recently recorded one of his most famous pieces. And it's absolutely incredible. And we're really excited to have him on the show. Um, Teresa, do you want to give a bit more background on him? So, yeah, I'm personally super excited because um, Seth Woods is a cellist. And um, I used to play the piano, but playing the cello was like my dream instrument. I think it's so beautiful. Um, And just like... I used to also be in an orchestra and just hearing the cellos would always be my favorite part. Sorry, every other instrument. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, Seth Woods is just so incredible and just like is really great at both, you know, straddling classical music as well as more contemporary music. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to him about sort of how he managed to transition from classical to contemporary, as well as like his personal relationship um, as a artist with Julius Eastman. Yeah, and if you haven't heard the album, it's called Julius Eastman Volume One, Feminine, They Play, or Feminine, they play Julius Eastman's piece, Feminine, in its entirety. And it's just an absolutely wild album. It's like nothing you're going to hear this year, um, especially towards the end. It's just like pure chaos. Really great album. And we're really excited to talk to him. So should we call him up right now, Teresa? Yeah, let's call him up. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah. Um, I think we want to ask some questions first about your personal experience and then kind of dive into the album and talk about Julius Eastman a bit. Sure. So I think first we were just wondering, like, how did your journey start with music or cello or how did your musical journey start? Um, well, I started playing cello at the age of five, but musically, I guess it had been there since birth, in a way, my father was a musician, so his jazz trio and gospel group, they were all, well, he was always rehearsing or performing, so that was just there, music was in the house, um, vinyls, eight-track tapes, etc., cetera, um, consoles. Um, and I'd seen the cello in a movie, <laughs> um, and I then went, I was at, it was in this, um, kind of early kind of pre-K elementary school um, that had a strong focus in the arts and sciences. And there was Mrs. Parker and I went to Mrs. Parker's room. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how I started. Uh, it was very much so just like most kids, you know, it was just a hobby at the time and became more and more serious about it. And then I went on, you know, to have a long educational career. <laughs> as a student in many countries and cities uh, around the world um, and uh, now I'm <laughs> I am here <laughs> I'm here and in the world um, teaching a new generation and performing um, as much as one can in this moment in time but yeah mm -hmm. uh, but it's been very interesting but cello has been my uh, primary instrument and really only instrument um, Ever. I played the saxophone for like one day, but I uh, had asthma, so that doesn't really work out. Uh, <laughs> um, De you said this is actually a health and safety hazard <laughs> for me. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, before I ask my next question, what movie was oh, it? It was The Witches of Eastwick. Okay, nice. Um, little wow. did they know they changed the trajectory of your life <laughs> that's wild um also I used to like play the piano um very classically and basically actually only played classically I played some jazz but like um I know that you've branched outside of like you know traditional classical cello um and I was wondering like what initially pushed you to explore that and what made you want to explore that yeah, um, 
it may have just been kind of growing up in my house and also I'm from Houston, Texas originally. So very rich and vibrant city with so many cultures, myself being kind of a melting pot. Um, so that sense of multiple styles away from Western classical music, I think kind of was just in, it was going to happen. <laughs> whether I went into it or not, or just the love for it. Um, but I think a lot of that started in high school and just seeing lots of Tejano groups and Zydeco and Creole um, music that was there like and getting very interested in tango music and playing a little bit of that and kind of learning that form. Um, and along that same time, I was studying with a cellist um, who also had a deep affinity for contemporary music, modern music. Um, and so I started kind of in that period, actually right around 17, which is so crazy. When you think about kind of trajectories normally for Western classical um, cellists or just instrumentalists, they usually don't come to that music until much later if they dive into it, you know? <laughs> um, and so I was coming so early, but because of, my teacher at the time, you know, and I was then meeting these composers who I would find out be who were already in this moment in time in their careers already already extremely famous and extremely prolific, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I was meeting them at seventeen, and I was like, "Hi, Elliot Carter." <laughs> I didn't know who he was, but he wrote this really hard piece for cello. Um, so um, maybe it was good that I didn't, you know. Um, so that that kind of the kind of the trajectory for me then, in that sense of just being open and just wanting to try new things and see kind of where I fit, where the cello fit, where it didn't fit, and where I could make it, try to make it fit. I think that's probably been my life journey to this point. It's just using it as a tool, um, express a, a, a wide variety of things, and not necessarily the thing that people seem to associate it with or say that it only belongs in one area. Um, I don't like labels. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so that's kind of, that was kind of how it started and it just branched off from there. My years living in Europe really expanded a lot of that as well. Um, work in becoming like a performative mu musician, like acting musician as well, kind of got explored in that period in time as well, interdisciplinary collaborations. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it all has built over the years and certain situations or circumstances I've been put in or been invited into. I think I've always just said yes to a lot of things to see kind of where it could take me uh, and try it and try to just have fun and, and not be kind of, as my mother would say, a one trick pony. <laughs> uh, but just try a wide breadth of things to be a very fluid, you know, like genre non-specific, you know. But of course I have a deep bedrock in Western classical music. Uh, and then I have found ways to try to explore many other things that of course also enlighten me and help me understand other cultures and backgrounds and, and uh, people. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and could you talk a little bit about how you got involved with Wild Up and um, kind of what role you had in this Julius Eastman project? Yeah, so um, Wild Up, I played with a few of the members um, 
it may have been 2017. I think I was only back in the States one year at that point. Yeah. Uh, and I was playing with uh, members from the group, not the group uh, respectively. Um, and I'd heard about this group, but I'd actually worked with, um, at the time, Chris Roundtree, the conductor and founder, um, first, when I first came back to the States. Uh, it may have been like a, a spring concert. I came back in February of 2016. So like that late winter, spring situation in New York, he was coming to conduct ensemble LPR. And I'd heard his name because I, I was back fresh. I was fresh back in America, figuring out what was happening now. And his name is a name that had come up and then I was, lo and behold, I was going to be working with him. And, um, and then maybe a year later, I started working with some members of the group out in LA, actually on a Julius Eastman project um, that wasn't a Wild Up production, but a, a Monday evening concert, which is the lo longest running concert series um, in Southern California, but I think actually just California in general for contemporary modern music. Um, so then it wasn't until, I think it was, it was a tour. Um, they invited me to come and do a tour that featured one of Julius's uh, pieces, but a, a wide range, um, I think it's called Free People. I think I got that wrong, but I think it's called Free People. I think that was the program. Uh, and we were going on tour. And then as part of that, we were also, yeah, that we were learning um, Stay On It, which is a, just a new arrangement of it. And then also Feminine, so in the early stages of this. So this is like 2019 officially, um, early 2019 when I, I think it was 2019. 2018 or 19, somewhere in there. Um, and then we were on tour and we were performing. Um, and that was kind of my first go, go around with them. And I was like, this group is wild. <laughs> but they, you know, they take some risks and chances in an exciting way. Um, and I had already known quite a few of the members or worked with them, so I already had a kind of nice little rapport. Um, and then we recorded the first of many albums now, some of Julius's works. Um, in later in 2019, it may have been around September, I think something like that. Uh, we recorded in LA, and then um, and now we are here <laughs> with the new album, first album out of Feminine, which I feel is like is like the, a great first introduction for a lot of people that don't know his music, um, and some that do, but that just have not heard this long form work of his one either ever or there have been so few either recorded or in live performance. So. I think it's a very special recording for us. Yeah, kind of on that note of there being so few recorded, I remember my first time hearing Feminine was back when the, I think the CD got reissued in 2016. And it's of like the, I think 1974 recording. Um, and I remember like the moment very clearly because I put it on in the car and my mom had like five minutes of it and she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> but um, I think something about that recording is that, or I feel like something about your new recording is you can just hear so much depth in the piece that you can't really hear in that recording. Um, was that something very intentional or how did you achieve that through the recording process? Yeah, so for that, project, um, I served as one of the co-leaders on that, having worked in with Jews' music for a long time now. Well, the first time I, I kind of, I was sent his name as an inquiry, did I know him? And then 
first thing I actually heard of his was The Holy Presence of Joan of Arc, which is his, his work for um, 10 cellos. And there's also a prelude, which he himself would sing, the baritone. Um, that was kind of what first got me into it. So with this work, um, co-led by myself and Richard and Chris, um, Richard Balotuto, pianist, um, we really wanted to try to find something new and fresh and organic that still felt that, that it held to the ethos of the work, but that made it really almost felt like this <laughs> trance, essentially that one could kind of just fall. And I think you do. I mean, the first thing you hear is just this, this pulsating or gyrating of bells. And it's like, <laughs> where are we going from here? It's almost like it reminds me like a pop song. Like it's just a huge long intro. And then you find, <laughs> And we get some lyrics if we could think about it in, in, in that way. And so, and Julius being one that wasn't afraid to kind of infuse so many of his works with these kind of pop elements in this point in time, because that's literally 60s, 70s is a, a huge kind of just musical hotbed of just popular music actually happening. And so it's kind of hard to believe that he wasn't influenced by that work, and but one that really acted on it. Um, so I think you hear that, you hear all these beautiful solos that which definitely happened in live performances. You know, we have to remind ourselves with any given recording, it is a snapshot of a specific take <laughs> in the studio or in the live performance. And it probably will be done, I mean, depending on which take they took, they probably did you know seven takes. In the case of this one, no, that was a live recording um, from the, the record you, you, um, you're referencing um, from the 70s. Uh, but they're, they're snapshots of moments in time and the ones that ensembles, groups, individuals decide to go with. Um, so for us, it really was about just trying to make it as human as possible and, and use it as a vehicle to kind of find a little, about, a little bit more about ourselves um, and as, as a, individually, but also um, as collectively. Because so much um, ownership is kind of given to the interpreters, to the performers in this work. And, and like many of the other works, there's a, a strong hardcore frame that Julius lays out, but then he really kind of leaves certain things up to the performers to kind of guide it. And I think in a sense, a deep sense of trust must be there, I think for everyone to kind of hold space for each other, but also hold space for it, for the collective to kind of drive the entire work uh, where it's going to go. And I think that's powerful. And instead of having everything very much so dictated and it fits in this box, and that is all you're going to get, and then we start with A and we end at B. <laughs> but it's like A, and then a lot of things can morph and happen, and then we get to B <laughs> in, in the case of this. So it's, um, I think a lot of that came out through this recording, and we tried to make it, I mean, there's so much soul, I think inside but also a lot of joy i think so much joy comes like human joy um comes through in that recording and i mean it was a hard recording session for, for us because it's so long and it's not like okay we're gonna do from minute da -da -da -da, to minute seven and then we're gonna do the next you know no it's like you kind of have to just take this journey like it's hard to kind of cut it and splice it it has to just go all the way through so you've got to feel that whole experience i think we did three takes it was a hot hot day <laughs> i remember that and there's all these musicians cramped in this recording like the live room and it wasn't a huge huge room like when you're putting in more than 15 players plus instruments and cases and stands and microphones all that stuff it gets really cramped real fast and so <laughs> so again also 
like holding space for each other, knowing, you know, emotions were felt, energies were felt. <laughs> and this was kind of a vehicle for us to kind of express that and just go. And, you know, the, the frame was there without trying to kind of micromanage it too much. Everyone knew exactly kind of what their role was and just to really be able to vibe off of each other, I think is a big part of that work. And I'm kind of just, I'm proud of what we came out with, even though I remember that day being just the, those last few takes were, <laughs> were woo, <laughs> they were difficult. Um, and then all the bells you hear, that was actually tracked afterwards. And so that's like a whole separate session that actually happened. And like the lights were out and just all different types of bells and lots of emotions. Again, we were just a whole full day of just like being in this space that, that's charged in so many ways. And people felt things, people had to sit down. People felt certain ways about which type of harmonies, what type of uh, timbres were coming out from which bells, you know. Um, so, I mean, it was a lot. It was truly a journey. Everyone had to be so present for it. I think that's the thing um, where it's like social music. His music is really sort of like everyone has to be there and truly be present and not like, okay, one person's kind of guiding it. We're just kind of following. That's like, no, literally everybody's up on this boat. <laughs> we're all doing it. So it's it's pretty astounding in that way, yeah. Yeah, and I was wondering, like, how do you collectively agree, like, this is the take that is the take and we're done? And, like, have you had moments where some people have been like, no, and then other people were like, that was the perfect one? Because <laughs> um, I feel like when you're like, I, obviously it's not a solo project, I feel like it's, is it difficult to gauge when the right take is the right take? I think so, you know, there's always, there's never going to be a perfect take. I'll put that out there. There's, there's no perfect take. There's a take that hopefully represents the best of most of the things that we wanted to try to get out of it. There's probably, who knows, many moments inside of a, a recording people are like, oh, that could have done better, that could have done that, you know. Eventually you have to just stop nitpicking because otherwise it'll never get out. Uh, you try to just go with the one that gives you the most satisfaction, that tries to tell the most truth to what you were trying to um, disseminate, you know, uh, and emote. Um, and so versions of it were put together between Chris and our producer, um, like lead producer on it. Um, and they kind of went back and forth. A few samples were sent out. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And then sent some notes back. Um, and then they kept working and kind of constructed and curated certain parts, especially with all the solos where those kind of fit together. So some of some cutting and splicing um, was laid in for that, but the overall core of it had to pretty much stay intact. But by the, I, I think it may have been the second or third like ensemble take, um, which was actually the one we ended up going with as far as like the core instrumental music, the bells, again, as I say, was a separate session, all on the same day still. Um, and so that's kind of how we went. But I think I remember kind of there being this weird, not weird, but like an exciting, but like ecstatic uh, consensus about the one that we finished up with. We're like, okay, that's that's the one. That's because <laughs> you get to a certain state in the in this type of music, and it's like you will know, you know, when you feel like certain things just vibed in a certain way, and like certain groups were there people really were locked in sync because you, you're present in a way, but you're still very inside of it. And it's hard to know once you kind of step away um, and then look look at it from a, from a distance because um, those things can be can be obscured in certain ways based on 
where you are in that moment. Yeah, and when you're talking about kind of getting to that perfect take, I can imagine that on a song, like, I don't know if you think of the songs in terms of their number, because I know you recorded it as all one thing. But oh, those that. are just the title. I mean, those are sections um, within the actual work that Julius just gave me. So we just included those. Perfect. Yeah. So then but like- It's one full, it's one full work, yeah. No, for sure. Um, but in like section seven, it's just like kind of insanity going on. And I was wondering when you're choosing a take there, is it about like, did everyone nail their entrances or is it about like how it felt emotionally? Like what goes into knowing like when that kind of chaos is created in the right way? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a lot of things that I'm pretty sure Chris and Lewis are our, our lead producer on that um, engineer uh, probably have similar or completely different thoughts. <laughs> My take, I will give you this take, um, at least is, is just my experience of it is really just having the energies align in the right way. Obviously, yes, certain entrances need to be, you know, be there like, okay, this is the thing, this is what we're looking for. There are certain kind of like um, goalpost moments in the work that kind of, that we all have kind of marked mark out. In, within our scores that these things need to kind of roughly happen in this moment, this type of energy, this type of approach to the material. Um, so in this specific section you're referencing, yeah, I think those types of energies, the right intonation, the ensemble clicking in the right way, filling that type of pocket, that does still feel like Bacchanal chaos. <laughs> um, those things have to align in, in, in an exciting way, but still feel very organic and not um, not forced, you know, because it could feel very regimented and, and um, boxed. And I think that could be a reading, totally, a totally, a total acceptable reading, but something that that feels human, that feels visceral, that feels raw. It uh, feels almost like you did this live on stage and you're just like burning the stage out. You're just leaving it all there and people can, like, you feel that, you know. Um, that, I think, um, when you find that or you hear that version of it, it's like, yeah, that's the one. That's, that's, that's print. <laughs> you know, so I think that's, that is at least my process and in, in, in listening to it now, I feel like that hopefully was something similar to what Chris and Lewis um, felt as well in, in finally saying yeah that that will be the one yeah and also like I know you brought up how like few recordings um from the time there is and like is it difficult to adapt a piece with like so few reference point reference points at hand well there there's a lot I mean a lot of a few of us have worked deeply with some of um Julius's music or worked with people that are still alive that were working with Julius at the time. So we have people around that now that still can help guide and did guide in the early days. But eventually, you know, I am not interested and we were very much so not interested in recreating a historical performance. Because again, that was a live performance of a version. There are other accounts, some of those musicians talking about other versions of the performances they did, where things were completely, completely different, you know? <laughs> It's just that's the one we have to go off. Thank goodness we at least have something and not just a score, a manuscript. We're like, what does this even sound like? How do they make these choices? What? <laughs> uh, so it is good to have a reference point so you understand the energies that were kind of put in there and what Julius infused and what you know his, his bandmates infused into the work and the choices they made and why they made them. 
and how they came to that practice over years of working together, you know, because so much of many of Julius's works um, you find with the manuscripts, um, those that still do exist, um, they feel so shorthand and you have, you have fragments of, you have a kind of like cellular material, like so bits of material, boxes of material, and then you have kind of time codes essentially to keep it all together. So this is happening at this moment, this is happening at this moment, this is happening at this moment. This is the idea, you extrapolate the idea over the course of this time. And this is kind of the framework and how you expand or contract that material. Um, so I think those things are very important to be able to understand. Um, yeah, I hope that kind of answered it. But it's been interesting kind of navigating all of that work over time. And um, for us, I think we've kind of landed at something. I mean, the recordings and also the live versions we've done have been totally different. And then even like our CD release we did at the Seekerstrom Arts was very different in some ways from the recording. And I hope people weren't expecting to get the exact same replication. There are certain things that are like strong kind of like anchor points that are still very much so just like the recording, but obviously we've gone, everyone has gone through a lot in almost two years now of this pandemic. Um, I think that has also altered our states of just, of our, as of ourselves, but also our creativity as people, as artists. Um, what we now bring and what this work can represent. Um, so different like rehearsal versions probably didn't sound anything like the recording. Uh, we kind of tried to just bring them together and also be referencing the recording, but also most importantly referencing um, the score to help guide us and then using our own intuition as just creatives um, to bridge overall uniform kind of collective understanding of what we're going for. Great. Um, that answered it. <laughs> <laughs> we had to wrap up in a minute, but I would, we have a couple more questions. First, I was just wondering, throughout your career as a cellist, have you gotten to work with the work of many Black composers? And has that changed in more recent years? I think for a long um yes the short answer is yes i have but only in the latter half of my now short-lived career I'm, I'm edging very quickly on 40 years old uh but um earlier on th there was not so much of that especially when i was living in europe there it was non-existent um and i think something shifted for me when i moved back to the states i mean i came back in 2016 I don't know if you remember what was happening in 2016, uh, but there's a lot happening, you know, in this country. I mean, everywhere in the world, but especially in this country. So I was hit really hard, you know, by that and feeling like I needed to, in some ways, abandon this kind of very Eurocentric approach to music making, especially in classical and contemporary music, and try to find the voices and stories of people that look like me. Or even if they didn't look directly like me, but that represented um, minority ethnic groups. And that those stories were even more important to be told, because uh, those are usually the stories that are erased or intentionally forgotten. Um, and so I guess part of my career really now has been seeking out more and working more with more intention with composers that are of color, specifically black, but black, brown, and AAPI, um, 
I did it, but I had been doing it earlier in my career, but not as intensely or um, with as much intention as I am doing more so now. And that's been something I've witnessed in myself that has just been changing. And that's not me being nationalistic or based on culture, but, but trying to show up for the younger version of myself that probably just didn't know. And now I, you always have the phrase of, if I, if I knew now what I, if I, if I knew then what I know now, you know, what would be different? And I can't say what that would be. Um, but I really have tried, you know, hard to commission a lot or work with organizations to commission um, cre other creatives um, to write for me or write for the instrument to kind of help push it forward, but also push myself into a space that, you know, <laughs> I didn't know. And sometimes those aren't musical composers. Sometimes those are poets. Sometimes those are choreographers. Sometimes those are painters. Um, those stories are infused, even if it's not sonically, if it's not directly, they're creating the sound, they're creating the text, or they've created the text, they've created the visual narrative that helps push that, that material forward. No, so that's super awesome. As says, I'm just reading for everybody black. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, long story short. <laughs> um, our final question is just, actually two final questions one is what has been inspiring you lately and also what are you most excited about for the rest of the year um wow um well i just moved so i'm really excited to get all of these boxes unboxed in my apartment um uh, and getting settled you know i this is an exciting time i just um I just moved to Buffalo, New York from Chicago, um, and I've taken up a new post as Distinguished Visiting Scholar here at the University at Buffalo. So what that means for the first time in my career um, in life, I actually have this kind of isolated time to really work on my own work, but also with, without actually having to be in a classroom and teaching and creating curriculum and creating syllabi, which I love doing, but it's hard to balance, if you're an active practitioner, it's hard to balance that pedagogical world with the practice-based world, you know, and do them both at such a high level. So this has given me, I'm excited for what this year can um, yield in the way I'm working on a book, my first book. Uh, and I'm also working on my next album, which is a, a lot about these stories of migration and translation and uh, dealing with grace, grace on the human level, you know, um, and so I'm working on that part of that, which is part of my my latest show, and now going to become my next album. So uh, I'm that's what this year is. I'm excited about that. And then the second part of your question was, what's the second? Was part? what has been inspiring you? Inspiring, I think. Um, the radical grace people have extended and also retracted in the face of ignorance <laughs> during this pandemic. <laughs> so, uh, just enough is enough on certain levels, but also realizing that we are so all connected in so many ways, even when people try, people or forces and powers try to show divides and then how people really can rally together on so many fronts 
that has inspired me on so many levels. And the, the work, the creative work, the work ethic that has come out of that um, across the board, across fields um, has been amazing and, and interesting reckonings. And I'm excited to see where that leads so many groups, um, objectively and subjectively. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. We'll be looking out for the new book and album. And like this Wild Up album is so beautiful. Like I've just been like binging it every day. So we love to hear it. We love to hear it. <laughs> Keep listening. Tell your friends. Pass it on. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoy getting to know Seth Woods of Wild Up. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.